Well, good morning, y'all. It's good to have everybody in the room. I got to say hello to everybody online. I always give like a little shout out, but I've heard from a handful of you guys the last couple weeks, and I always got to remember this real people on the other side. Our communications director, Tempe, gave me a list of some of the places you guys are coming from. So I got to give some shout outs. We got folks from Iowa. You know who you are. We love you guys. Illinois, Oklahoma, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Texas, New Jersey. We know you guys too. Missouri. That's Solon's mom, everybody. Just want to say that. South Africa, we know who you guys are too. And we even have South Korea, a wonderful family joining South Korea. Can we just show some love to everybody online real quick? We're glad you guys are here. Really, really glad. And Ashley, I promise I'd say hi. I hope everything went well last week. All right, I know you're online, joined us. So it's good to have you here. Good stuff happening, everybody. Good stuff. Now, I want to start on a really positive note. Let's start things really high. Do you have any regrets? Is there anything in your life, if you could turn the clock back on, you would love a do-over on? On every level, every single one of us, right? We totally got this. Now, Bronnie Ware, she's this hospice nurse who specializes working with people who have three months or less to live. She's worked with thousands of patients. She ended up even writing a book based on her experiences called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Now, this is interesting because the top five things, some you might expect, you know, people wish they didn't work as much, more time for family, that kind of thing. But there was a number one thing that she said she heard more than anything else for the top regrets people have. And it's this, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself. Now she actually unpacks this idea a little bit more. She says, when people realize that their life is almost over and look back clearly on it, it's easy to see how many dreams have gone unfulfilled. Most people had not honored even a half of their dreams and had to die knowing that it was due to the choices they had made or not made. Now, I am fast approaching what's called middle life currently. That's the trajectory I'm on. I'm in the season right now where most of the people I'm around are just battling jobs and dual income and kids and activities and schedules and all of those things. And pretty much everybody I'm talking to, they're just like, Ryan, I got to get out of the rat race. I feel like I'm in a grind right now. I was at our neighborhood park just this last week, just talking to some of the families and everybody's comparing all the insane schedules that are about to start with school, the pickups, the drop-offs, the sports, the activities, all of the things. And all the parents are just talking about how they get one little slight reprieve at the end of the week on Friday when all the neighbors come out and drink their sorrows away so they can get ready for another Monday. That's the routine. Now, there's actually a quote that kind of haunts me a little bit. It was written by this guy named Henry David Thoreau, a famous author. He says this, most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. I do feel like I look at a lot of people, you kind of look at their face, and you really think there is so much more potential in that person. There's so much more life. There's so many more dreams. There is a song inside of this person that God wants to bring out. But many of us, we'd probably describe our lives as just frenetic combination of activities, demands, responsibilities, and even pleasures that don't ultimately have a lot of significance. There's a song inside, but it doesn't get played. Now today, we are finishing up our 
There is more series. Can I just say this? I'm so sad we're closing it out today, everybody. I got at least four more weeks, maybe eight. I got months of material on this stuff. I don't want to stop. I'm just going to be honest. I got more to say. But I don't say this for every series. This is one of the series for a church that I really want everybody to experience. So if you missed any of the last four weeks, I'm just asking you to go back so I can know we all have gone through this together because I think it's that much more that important. And really the premise of the series is there is so much more that God wants to do in and through your life and that we often settle for so much less than what God even wants for us. He wants more for you than you often do. And that there's so much more to his power and presence available to us if we are willing to step out and experience it. But this ain't free. That's what we've been saying the last couple of weeks. There is a cost. There are conditions. And so the second week I talked about how you got to break up the fallow ground. You got to humble yourself before God. I'm not going to lie, folks. That was a good sermon. I'm just saying. I don't say that often. That was a good one. All right. I'm just saying. I don't like listening to my preaching. I was like, that's a pretty good sermon right there. Just saying. So if you go back, listen to it, it'll help you. So you got to break up that ground. You got to soften the soil of your soul so Jesus can really start working. But last week we even talked about you got to make moves for God. It takes steps of obedience to experience everything he has for you. And 53 people plus two got baptized to really express that step of obedience. And we are so proud, so proud of you taking that step. Now, today, we waited for the big one. Because today, I want to talk about the one single ingredient you see in any great move of God throughout history. There's one thing. If there were a secret sauce to the Christian life, this is it. In any great move of God, this is the only consistent variable you see. It's not preaching. It's not melting your face off worship music. It's not killer kids ministries. The one thing, do you guys want to know what it is? It is prevailing prayer. Now here, you wouldn't admit it right now, but there's three or four of you that are like, oh man, Womp, womp. Prayer. Of course the pastor says prayer. I thought he was going to say some elixir at the end of the rainbow that we can all drink together or something, like something more exciting. But now prayer, Brian, come on. Now stop. Just wait for a second. I'm not just talking about any old prayer. I'm going to define what this is, and I think it might change some minds when you see what this really means. But I'm curious, what does your prayer life look like right now? How's your prayer? Are you experiencing everything you could ever hope for from what you're asking of God? Are you seeing him move mountains like Jesus said he would do? Let's just have a moment of honesty. Most of us, if we truly admitted what our prayer life was like, we'd say, you know what, Brian? It's kind of this frustrating experience of fits and starts and stops and restarts, mostly focused on my personal needs, emergencies, of course, with very little results. I think that'd be a fair assessment for most people's prayer experience. Mary Peckham, she's a woman who actually lived through one of the great revivals of history of the Christian church. She wrote a book about it. She said this, many of us pray just enough to ease the conscience, but not enough to win any decided victory. We are playing at praying. Ouch. We have put very little into it and therefore have received very little from it. Prayer has not been a mighty force, but merely a harmless conventionality. 
That's real talk right there. The reason praying doesn't work for a lot of us is we're not working at it. And we pray, but sometimes it's dry, it's rote, it's routine, and we don't see the types of things we would want to see out of it. Now, we're talking about prevailing prayer today. I know that's not a word you typically use in your common vernacular, but you think about something that prevails. This is something that proves to be more powerful than its opposing force. That's an important idea. You might be in a battle, but you are going to come out on top. To prevail means you will ultimately win the day. You are going to overcome. You will see victory. That is prevailing prayer. Now, what I'm not talking about right now is your travel mercy prayers. Anybody pray right before the flight? God, don't let the plane crash. I know every single odd is in my favor right now, which is fine. You can pray for the plane to stay in the sky. That's totally fine. Anybody pray for a good parking spot before? Come on, anybody? I do it all the time. You might as well ask, right? God, you got anything up front? I mean, I'll take it if it's there. Anybody do the Lord bless this food to our bodies prayer? You're at McDonald's about to eat a Big Mac and you're like, Lord, bless it to our bodies. I laugh all the time. I'm hanging out with people. We got a giant oily pizza right in front of us. God, just bless this food to our bodies. And I'm just thinking, I'm like, I, I, I have to believe that God's like, here's the thing. Um, I can't bless that pizza. Now, it's going to taste good, and you're going to be in the bathroom in an hour, but I can't bless what's about to happen. This is not what I'm talking about right now. When I'm talking about prevailing prayer, I am talking about prayer that knocks down the doors of heaven. This is prayer that settles for nothing less than the reign of God, of his power and his presence. This is the more we are talking about. You look through church history, you read through the Bible, anytime you see a great move of God in somebody's life or community, you will find people who became so frustrated with status quo spirituality and complacent Christianity that they decided to give God no rest until he sent more. That is prevailing prayer. There's a pastor theologian, Samuel Chadwick. He says, prayer turns ordinary mortals into men and women of power. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. If you truly want more, I only got one more sermon to harp on this, okay? So I'm going to harp on it as much as I can. If you really want this, you truly want a greater experience of God in your life, you have to have this. There is no other alternative. This is a requirement prevailing prayer. So how is this different? How is this different from our typical regular spiritual practices? What sets prevailing prayer apart? What are some of the qualities? The first thing we see when we really study this idea is prevailing prayer is intense. It's intense. There is heat to prevailing prayer. There is a passion behind it. And just so you guys can see, you wouldn't maybe notice this at just a cursory reading the Bible. I hope this is something you notice now as you read it more. Look in Acts 12, verse 5. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, it doesn't just say they're praying. 
it says earnestly praying. Now, this is an interesting idea because this idea of earnestly is this idea of stretching out to the max. It is going to your ultimate maxed out capacity. I mean, these people are exerting themselves with real intensity. It's like an athlete stretching towards the finish line to win the race. It's everything you've got. First Thessalonians 3, Paul says, night and day, we pray most earnestly. James 5, Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Please don't pray that in Colorado. We need our rain. All right, don't pray against the rain here. One more example, Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is a theme all throughout the Bible and Christian history. And you see when God shows up through this kind of prayer. There's a guy named John Knox. He was a pastor in the 1500s in Scotland, right? So we're going back into the history books for this. Now, John Knox is interesting because he got to a point where he was so frustrated with the spiritual state of his country and his culture, he started praying on another level. So much so that the queen at the time, this is a quote from the queen. She said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. All right, when the queen is saying, hey, that dude over there praying on his knees is scarier than all those dudes with the swords, you know he's got an intensity to his life that is on another level, all right? And John Knox had this moment in his life of such frustration about what was going on that he prayed probably the most intense prayer he's ever prayed. And he came out and he said this. He said, God, give me Scotland or I die. That's intense, everybody. God, you're going to give me this or I'm just going to drop dead praying for it. That is my only alternative. And you read that, you're like, wow, okay, that's a little over the top. Well, John Knox, through his prayers, became the catalyst of what became known as the Scottish Revival and Reformation that is still being felt to this day, the reverberation and ripple effects of this man's prayers and seeking after God. That is the kind of intensity we're talking about. That's what we're aiming for. Now, moment of honesty. How many people in the last week said, God, give me Colorado or I die? <laughs> Anybody praying that at their house? This is another level. And most of us, we've got stuff going on in our lives. We're busy. We got jobs. We got kids. We got bills. The in-laws are coming over. We got to clean the house. There's things to do. We have so much stuff that just saps our mental and spiritual energy. It's hard to even imagine being that intense about stuff. Most of our prayer lives don't look anything like this. But what's interesting is Jesus at one point confronts a church from the first century. He's got some words for them. This ain't teddy bear Jesus today, everybody. Revelation 3.15, this is what he says. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now Jesus is talking about the state of their spiritual intensity. He's like, you've got no heat. There is no temperature to you. 
You are like a nasty glass of tepid water. I want to spit you out of my mouth. What's interesting, you read some commentators on this. Some commentators think that when Jesus says you're neither hot nor cold, that he just wants you to be intense either way. Cold and hot is both good. Some commentators even think that God, Jesus is even saying, I would rather you be cold towards me and indifferent than lukewarm. Cold, where you're at least against me, is better than that. Either way, you can study that on your own. I want to emphasize the heat, all right? Because Jesus definitely says that the heat is good right here. Now, again, these science nerds in the room, you might recognize this number right away. 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Anybody know what that temperature is? Water starts to boil, right? 212 degrees. Now, if 212 degrees is boiling, let's talk in spiritual terms. What temperature are you right now? What's your spiritual temperature? What kind of heat do you have? Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in the 1800s. He says, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure of the intensity of your prayer. So the best thermometer for your spiritual life, how's the intensity of your prayer? Is there any heat to it? Because prevailing prayer is boiling hot prayer. And that's actually exactly the word that Jesus used when he said hot. He's like, I want you to be boiling over. That's the idea he's using. Paul in Romans 12 verse 11, he says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Here's what I find so interesting about this. Paul is placing the responsibility on us for our spiritual intensity. He's like, this is on you. You need to fight for the heat in your life. You've got to fight for that fire. And I get it's interesting too. He doesn't give any disclaimer. He's not here. Here's the thing. You need to be zealous, but if you're busy, you got a lot going on, or you're going through a rough patch, it's okay. We understand the temperature might go down a little bit. No, he's like, you can't be lacking in zeal. Like this is a requirement for your spiritual life. This is critically important. And this is your job. So this is our moment of reflection today, church. What in my life is making me lukewarm? Why are you spiritually tepid? Why is your temperature lower than it should be? Why aren't you boiling over with passion and intensity for God? If you want more, it is going to require you to be spiritually boiling. Jesus doesn't work with lukewarm. He spits that out of his mouth. Spiritual intensity and heat is a requirement to experience more from God. And I'm going to get just a little practical here. This is nuts and bolts. Now, this is just personal stuff here. All right, these are some ideas, things I've seen in my experience. When I talk to people about their spiritual temperature sometimes, pretty much everybody I talk to is like, okay, I'm a five out of 10. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of like right in the middle. And what scares me is most people seem relatively content with that. We're just used to it. Again, just spiritual complacency and status quo is just what we think it's supposed to feel like. And then when I talk to people about getting some of the heat up, a lot of people struggle to really hold that heat. And one of the biggest problems I think that people experience with this, because they can't really seem to get the passion up, is they are not being intense enough with the applications. Like most people are like, well, maybe I'll just watch a little bit less TV. Or I should probably read the Bible more. Here's one thing that I think truly will 
transform your experience of getting more spiritual intensity in your life. And what you need to do is bring a flamethrower to your life. You need to light your life on fire. Like literally, just pour gasoline all over it and light a match. That's what you need to do. And what I mean by that is, for me, I've found this to help me so much. Anytime I'm feeling spiritually flat, which I do all the time, I fight this. It's hard to keep that heat up. What I've learned, though, is you need to spiritually jolt your system. You actually need to create spiritual discomfort in your life. Like, it needs to hurt a little bit. That's the only thing that creates heat. So, for example, you might say, well, man, I do probably watch a little bit too much TV. I would say, you just need to quit TV. Well, for how long, Brian? As long as it takes. Just saying. Now, I don't want to bring legalism into your life. You got to do what you got to do. But I'm talking about intensity to this. Some of you guys, you're on your phones all the time. You're on social media. It's all this opportunity you have to be with God. You just need to stop. No, not five minutes today. Zero minutes a day for as long as it takes. Like, you need to get serious about this. Some of you guys, I preached on fasting in January. If you're here, you haven't done a fast yet. And sometimes people are like, well, here's what I'm going to do, Brian. I'm going to give up M&Ms for four hours. I'm going to do a fast for Jesus. And what you really need to do, though, you need to be like, I'm doing juice fast. I'm doing water. Like, I'm giving up some meals for this thing. I am going to create some discomfort in my life to jolt the system. Some of you guys, you, you're like, I'm too busy. I don't have time. No, you're not making the time. Set your alarm two hours earlier. Well, I'm going to be tired. Yes, you will. And you will also be spending that time with God creating spiritual heat in your life. How bad do you want this? How bad do you really want it? If you want heat, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. You have to fight for your fire. You have to bring some intensity to this thing if you really want to see God do more. How far are you willing to go? I would say go as far as you need to go in some cases to get that heat up. It's got to be intense, everybody. But it ain't just intensity. Some people, when they start doing this, we get really discouraged. I'll talk to people and they're like, man, Brian, I've been praying every day. I've been trying to read my Bible. I haven't seen anything happen. You know, here's the thing. I totally understand it. It is easy to get discouraged in the spiritual life, truly. So I'm totally acknowledging that. Let me give you an encouragement here. Paul in Galatians 690 says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, you guys may not recognize this name, R.U. Darby. You probably won't recognize that name. What's interesting about this guy is he lived in the 1800s. He got caught up in the gold rush that was happening. So he gets all excited about hitting it big, and he buys all this equipment and machinery and moves from Maryland to here in Colorado. So he blows all this money, gets all this equipment. He starts digging and he's going after. He's like, I'm going to hit this thing big. And actually he comes across, these are called like gold veins, I guess, where the ore starts to show signs of a lot of gold maybe being in the area. So he's getting super excited. He buys more equipment. He gets more of his family to come out. And he's like, we're about to strike this thing big. He's digging for months and months following this gold vein. And eventually it starts drying up a little bit. And he's like, what the heck? This doesn't seem to be working. So he starts digging more. He puts some more months into it and they just go after it. And eventually. He gets so discouraged and jaded and exhausted by this. He goes and finds a junk man and just sells all of his equipment for pennies on the dollar, goes home, broke, discouraged, and completely defeated. Well, this junk man, now he's got all this gold digging equipment on hand and he, he doesn't know what to do with it. So he goes right back to where R.U. Darby was and stopped. And he's like, I guess I'm just going to start digging with this stuff. This junk man digs for three feet 
and hits one of the largest gold deposits ever discovered in the history of the gold rush. He made multi, multi millions of dollars in the 1800s, digging three feet. R.U. Darby was three feet away from gold. What if your breakthrough is just a few shovelfuls away? What if revival is just literally within arm's reach? What if one of the greatest moves of God we have ever seen in our time, his presence and power pouring out in your life, this church, our state and the world, what if it is literally just feet away? Sometimes God keeps you waiting because he's got a bigger harvest. That's the thing. Every prayer, every moment of waiting is more seed in the ground that God is working through time and commitment. And he promises, he says, if you won't grow weary, you're going to get the harvest. It's not a maybe, it is a definite promise. And so today I want to encourage some of you, do not let weariness win. You got to fight for your fire. You have to bring some intensity to this because there is a harvest coming. God promises if you will push through, you are going to strike gold. Don't you give up when you're three feet away. Keep digging because God is going to bring his gold and his rewards and his harvest. You got to trust him. Got to bring some intensity to this, but I want to keep moving. It's not just intense. It's actually unified. Prevailing prayer is unified. Now, I, I, I'm a drummer by practice, been doing it most of my life. Some of you guys might see a cameo appearance every now and then, all right, when the worship team gets desperate for the bench drummer. But um, I actually, my passion growing up was drum line, even more than drum set. So I got any band nerds in the house? Any marching band folk? Come on, I got it. Let's go, all right? There's like two people in the first service. I was like, all right, we're not a band church, apparently. Um, but I was banned. And the thing I loved about the drum line, you got 19 people that are working on these intricate rhythms and playing them all together in perfect unison. It's really just a cool experience. Now, what most people think about drums, they think it's all about how hard you hit, right? It's all volume. Drummers want to be loud. And yet, there's something that really separates the amateurs from the pros, and it's your ability to play in unison. We would always have our drum instructors telling us, guys, you have to play in unison because the closer you play together, the sound waves actually line up more and more, creating a fuller, more powerful sound. And so you go to these drum competitions and you see all the amateurs just smacking their drums as hard as they can, thinking they're rock stars, and it just sounds like noise. Then you get to the pros and they are playing this perfect sound that you can feel in your body because of the power of them playing in unity. In Acts chapter 1, 14, it says, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer. Now, what's so interesting about this moment in the history of the church, this is Pentecost. This is when God's presence and power by the Holy Spirit comes down in its first real dramatic way on a community of people igniting the launch of the Christian church and God's work of spreading the gospel throughout the world. And it happened in the context of unified prayer. You look through the Bible, you see this theme played out so many times when God's people gather to prayer in unity, aligning their hearts and their desires. You literally see prison shackles coming off of people you see buildings shaking from the power of God. You see sick people getting healed, dead people coming back to life, entire cities and nations getting turned upside down from people gathering for prayer. 
Jesus is even big on this. Matthew 18, verse 19, he says, again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. I actually never caught this before. This is something that I learned recently. That word agree is actually the word symphonize. It's where we get our word symphony from. There's other parts of the Bible that even translate this word as music. So you think of like a symphony, so many different sounds and instruments coming together to create this beautiful, unified sound. And Jesus is even using this idea when he's talking about Christian community and unity and even prayer. When there's different voices, different languages and personalities and words even being used, when they come together, though, aligned in heart and spirit, it is like music to God's ears. It is a beautiful, unified sound to him. And if I have had any hope and prayer for this series, it's that our church would unify around this desire for more. That we would just be going to God together saying, God, more, 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 more. We want more, 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 more. We ask for more, more, more. And just that unified voice coming to God, I just believe he's going to turn his ear and be like, Man, I hear a beat down at Northern Hills. That sounds good. I think I'm gonna start, I think I'm gonna do something about that beat. I'm feeling that. There's gotta be unity to this thing, everybody. But there's one more thing to prevailing prayer. It's intense, it's unified, and finally, it is costly. It's costly. Now, five years ago, I attempted my first ever triathlon. <laughs> Now, don't get too impressed, okay? This wasn't one of those manly ones where you do like the full marathon. It was a very short one. They shortened the distance for us guys. <laughs> but I started doing all the bike rides and the runs and even doing laps at the gym pool. And I'm feeling pretty good about this. I'm like, all right, I'm going to kill this thing. I got this. And I even had a friend who had done plenty of triathlons. He's like, Brian, you are going to destroy this race. He's like, get up to the front because you get to pick where you start. He's like, get up to the front. You don't want any of those slow pokes slowing you down. And so I get to race day. There's literally Olympians at this race. I'm like, all right, I'm going up to the front. I'm going to hang out with these guys. I got this. And the gun goes off and we're all sprinting down the beach and we dive in the water. It took me five seconds to realize I had made a terrible mistake because nobody told me that swimming laps in a pool is nothing like swimming in open water. I've got feet kicking me in the face. There's waves. I can't see the bottom. I can't touch the bottom. I started freaking out. It was a horrible experience. I did not understand what the physical price was for this triathlon. And I was not ready to pay it. Luke 14, 28, Jesus says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? If you're going to remodel your kitchen... If you're going to do your patio, you better have some money in the bank, right? This is just common sense Jesus right here. He uses another illustration after. He says, if you're going to go to war, you better make sure you got a good chance of winning. Otherwise, you don't want to fight. Basic stuff. But he uses these illustrations to apply a spiritual principle. In verse 33, he says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That's a high bar, everybody. I mean, holy cow, he's asking a lot. Now, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me in here. Salvation from Jesus, 100% free. 
It is by grace. It is by faith alone. There is nothing you do to earn the love of God. He wants to lavish it on you and give you forgiveness. You'll have an opportunity to do that today if you have not done that. So don't miss me on that. But what most people don't understand, while salvation is free, to get everything that God wants for you, the more he has for your life, it is very expensive. You know, there's a lot of people probably this last couple of weeks are like, yeah, Brian Moore, I like that. I'll take some more. Hook me up. Where do I sign up? This all sounds great. It's like, well, hold up. Have you counted the cost? Do you know the price of this thing? You don't sign up for a triathlon if you don't know how to swim. You don't start building a house if you're broke. You don't ask God for more until you have really counted the cost of this thing. There's a guy named Arthur Wallace. I've quoted him a handful of times throughout this series. He's really influenced me in big ways. He says this, let us face it now. Let us face it on our knees before God. Revival is costly. If it were otherwise, the people of God would be more ready for it than they are. And perhaps God would send it more often. If the windows of heaven are to be opened, the price must be paid in the coin of sacrifice. Do you know what you're asking for when you ask God for more? Do you really know what this is going to cost you? Are you willing to pay the price? Just a few lines later, Wallace says this, many drop out of the battle because the price proved to be more than they were prepared to pay. You know what? Casual Christianity, that's my sweet spot. That's where I'm comfortable. Spiritual status quo, I'm going to settle for that. This is too much. What cost are we even talking about? Like, what's it actually going to require? What's the price? There's a lot of nuance to this. I'm just going to hit two things. There's definitely more. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. Doing a jog around the block is not the same thing as signing up for a marathon. There is a way greater commitment to the training, exertion, and time. And Paul is using this to apply a spiritual principle. He's like, you are in a race and you need to run your guts out. You got to run this thing to win. And if you really want to see God do more in your life, it is going to come at a cost. There is going to be a time commitment. There's going to be an intensity commitment. There are going to be hours that you could be doing something else where you're on your knees seeking after God. Some of you, there is going to be a fast cost. It is going to cost you meals and comfort and all the things that you wish you could be doing to really experience everything God has for you. Everyone wants the prize. Not everyone's willing to run. It's one of the prices. There's another piece to this price, though. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do you think Satan is going to stand idly by when you start prevailing in prayer and asking God to move mountains and bring his kingdom purposes forward? No, you're smacking a hornet's nest. And sometimes I'll talk to people and they're like, well, Brian, I don't really feel a lot of spiritual warfare or resistance. Well, maybe you're not a threat. You know, a lot, a lot of us, we do a perfectly fine job screwing our own lives up. We don't even need any help from Satan. You do it all by yourself. There is a man named Daniel Nash. He's probably one of the greatest 
prayer warriors in the history of the church. And I bet you don't even know his name, but this is a biographer that said about him. It said during the day in which he lived, not many people knew his name while others paid little attention to him, but God knew his name. The devil also knew his name and trembled every time he entered the room. Does the devil know your name? Are you a real threat to spiritual darkness and evil in this world? If you want more, you're going to end up on the radar of the enemy. It's going to come at a cost. You know, I've had my own kind of journey on this whole thing. I want to let you guys just look under the hood of why we're even talking about this for a whole month. It was last October when I really started getting introduced to all the things we're talking about in this series. I started reading all the books. I started studying the Bible and all this, and it just was percolating and percolating. And I finally got to this critical moment through all this study where I just realized, I said, oh my goodness, this is what the people of God need. Our current approach to just church and the spiritual life, it is not enough for what is required to see the needle move in our culture for the purposes of God. We need more. Like we truly need more if we want to see God do anything meaningful in our day. And so I just felt this real deeply. And we as a staff, we just started talking about it. We even started dipping our toe into prevailing prayer and praying and spending staff meetings doing this. So we started doing this a little bit. Well, it was at the start of the series when I really started to get some tastes. Now, if any of you guys were at the first week, especially for the 9 a.m. service, you would remember that I almost keeled over in the middle of a sermon and I couldn't even stand up to finish it. If you're at the 10, I got full of drugs and orange juice and I survived through the second service on a chair. And for the next two days, I was laid out, everybody. I mean, I had never had anything like that happen in my life. Now, I am very careful. I am not here to over-spiritualize my experiences or put words in God's mouth. But truly, after that first Sunday, it did feel like God was saying, so Brian, I'm giving you a taste of the cost here. You just smacked a hornet's nest. Are you sure you really want to pay this price? Do you understand this cost? And so I survive that first week and get through it. The second week, we talked about breaking up the fallow ground and how God wants to rain down his power and his righteousness. It was a good sermon, everybody. And I remember getting home, though, after those services, talking about God raining down his favor. And just as luck would have it, it starts raining after church that Sunday. Now, again, I'm not here to over-spiritualize, but I had a moment with God. I'm looking outside at the rain, and I remember just thinking and praying to God and him saying, Brian, this is what I want to do. I want to send the rain. I want this. This is my heart. Do you really want it, though? Are you really willing to pay this price? And it was that day I was really wrestling with this. And I was driving back to the church for an event that night, just really going back and forth like, man, am I really willing to pay this price? Do I really understand what this is going to cost? I've studied this stuff. And I had this defining moment in the car. I still remember it really marked me when I'm really wrestling through this. And I remember getting to a point where I'm like, God, what's the alternative? What other option do I have? We have a world that's falling apart, people passing into a hopeless eternity. We have an entire generation growing up that knows, doesn't even know Jesus. I don't want that on my conscience. I got nothing better to do than to go all in on this. I'm willing to pay this price. What's the cost, God? Because what else am I going to do? Some of you guys might even know that story. When Jesus' disciples, they start abandoning him, they're done. This, they're like, the cost is too much. And Jesus looks at his followers, he's like, all right, are you guys out too? 
Like, is this too much? And Peter, he talks back to him. So you get another story. Peter's like, Jesus, who else are we going to go to? Like, we burned all the boats. There's no off-ramp to this thing. You are the one who has the words of life. And that's what I think this is, everybody. Where else are we going to go? God's the only one who sends the rain. He's the only one who can provide this power. And whatever cost is required, I can guarantee you, he will make it worth it. There is a song inside of you that God wants to play. There is a life of no regrets that he wants you to live. And I'm telling you, if we are going to see an outpouring of God's presence of power in our lives and in this church, it is going to come at a cost. And if God sends it, someone somewhere paid the price. Are you willing to be one of those people? Are you really willing to pay the price for more? If you are, if you truly are one of those people, I want to challenge you to start taking the steps. You need to start paying the price. First off, if you are not a Christian in here, become one today. Put your faith in Jesus. He wants to forgive your sin. He wants to set you free. He wants to guide and direct your life. It'll be the best decision you ever made. We'll give you an opportunity. We pray at the end, just do that. Give your whole life to him. It's the best thing you could do for all of us. We need to start practicing prevailing prayer. You need to bring some intensity to this. We need to align ourselves as a church and we need to start paying the price to see God move. And for any of you guys that are highly motivated, my readers in the room, if you really want to go deeper in this subject, there's a book that's a great starter. It's called In the Day of Thy Power. It's by the Arthur Wallace guy. This is a great primer on what God has done through history and what's powerful, what's possible when we really ask him for more. It'll really challenge you. If you're a new Christian, just read the Bible, okay? That's a great starting point. Don't start with this book, okay? (laughs) That'll be a little much. For every person here, though, I want to make a special ask of you. One thing that we talked about is the importance of united prayer and God's people coming together. And I was just like, why would we preach on this without giving an opportunity to actually apply it? which is why we are putting an exclamation point on the end of this year's and putting a stake in the ground that we will be a church that does this, which is why tonight at 7 p.m. we are gathering for our night of prayer and worship. That was an intentionally planned. This is our chance to actually put this to practice. And from 7 to 8 p.m., we are going to seek God for more as a community. This is something you see in every great historic revival. God's people come together for special times of prayer. And so I am making a special ask of everybody. I understand there's conflicts. I understand you may have other commitments. There's no guilt. I totally get that. But if there's any way for you to be here tonight at 7 p.m., I'm asking you to start paying the price. Will you pay the price of one hour? And if this is a new thing to you, we are not going to put you on stage. You're not going to have to hold 20 people's hands and pray in front of a bunch of people, all right? It's going to be a great experience. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. It'll be fun. But I'm asking, will you come? Will you unite together and pray for more? I'm telling you, the price will be worth it. We'll be here right at 7 p.m. Northern Hills, God wants to do more. Do you want it? Are you willing to pay the price? Because I promise you, he's going to make it worth it. And if we will just step out, he's going to do more.
than we could ever possibly ask or imagine. Let's pray together. Jesus, we just praise you today that you want more for us than we even want for ourselves. That God, there's so much you want to do that you're just waiting to rain down on us. And now I just pray, God, as we close out this series, that you would just stir in our hearts to unite us in this desire to see you do more. We pray for more, God. Help us count this cost. I pray, help us have some holy intensity. Help us with our spiritual temperature. And even if you're praying right now and you realize you have never fully committed your life to Jesus, I want to give you this opportunity right now. You can just pray to Jesus in your heart and say, Jesus, I want to invite you into my life. I'm asking you to forgive my sin. I'm asking you to direct and guide me that you would be my Savior, that you would be my Lord. You give me the hope of eternity in this life and the next And Lord, I pray for everybody reaching out to you right now that you just confirm your presence and your salvation in their lives. And for all of us, Lord, I pray that we would take this seriously, that we would seek you, Lord, and pay the price because we know you are going to do more as we step out. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Thanks for checking out this week's message. If you'd like to get involved here at Northern Hills, check out our website at inhills.org or download the Northern Hills app. We hope to see you again soon.